comes the rain, with my anger comes a tide of emotion, killing joy, cutting steel across your eyes. Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Jeremy Bai for the first episode of the Righteous Blood podcast. We're going to be talking about the game Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades that Jeremy and I made for Osprey. And um, and so, yeah, so today we'll be talking about two movies that we think cover three themes that we felt were really essential to the wuxia genre. And before we begin, I do want to mention I have a slight cold and Jeremy is also in lockdown with a child. So, you know, there may be interruptions from time to time. We're going to try to minimize all that as much as we can. But if you hear a cough, if you hear a kid in the background, that's why. Um, we're doing the films One-Armed Swordsman and The Crippled Avengers. So before we get into, you know, the the, the discussion, I, I just wanted to hear from you, Jeremy. What what did what did you think of these movies? I don't know what your experience with them was before the podcast. I watched both of them years ago, and I really liked them. I, I remember watching One-Armed Swordsman in the past a lot more clearly because I know it had a big reputation. I came to the wuxia genre... Um, not from like the old Shaw Brothers movies, but I came after watching Crash and Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and then getting more involved and excited about the like 90s and the post 90s Wushu movies. And so I remember early on when I first watched One Armed Swordsman, I didn't really like it as much. It's not that I didn't like it, but it came across as an old movie to me. And at that time, I was a lot younger. Okay. And so I remember not liking it as much back then. Now this this time around, I actually liked it a lot more. Um, same with Crippled Avengers, which I remember vaguely watching. I, I didn't make as much of an impression on me when I originally watched it, but watching it this time around, I also liked it a lot more. I do have to point out that um, my main work is translation, so I I translate under the pen name Deathblade. I've translated a lot of Chinese fiction, and so I tend to come at it from a language perspective a lot, but I'm not going to talk about that today. I did a whole YouTube video about One-Armed Swordsman where I compared the Chinese to the English and if you want you can check that out on my YouTube channel. It's YouTube uh, YouTube.com slash deathblade So I'm not going to talk about the language aspect just going to talk about the plot and the characters and that kind of stuff and uh, Summary is I really like both of them And I think that they really do encapsulate a lot of the key stuff that we were aiming for in the game You know, it's interesting. I actually was familiar with the 90s stuff before I was familiar with the Shaw Brothers stuff um, because, you know, I, like I would have known more about Jet Li and Jackie Chan than I would have known about, you know, uh, you know, Cheng Che movies or something until later on. But uh, so so I, I completely understand where you were coming from, because the aesthetics are different. The performances are totally different. The style of fighting has evolved so much by the 90s. What I liked when I first went and watched One-Armed Swordsman was, number one, the theme, the idea that this guy is maimed and has to you know, retrain himself to become a, you know, as a great hero again, but that he overcomes it. I also loved the beauty of the movie. It was shot in a way that a lot of modern movies aren't. And so it has almost a golden age of Hollywood type look to it, which I found nostalgic because I grew up on a lot of golden age of Hollywood type things. Um, and, and also I think because my, my mind is sort of oriented around history, I really liked seeing the once i realized there was an evolution of, of martial arts movies i liked going back 
and looking at the early movies and seeing that evolution occur over time. Um, but but also, you know, these are these are great movies that I think, regardless of what era you know you're you're partial to, uh, especially One Armed Swordsman. One Armed Swordsman is like the the classic in this group, and the Crippled Avengers is more of a hidden gem, maybe, wouldn't you say? That. Yeah, I agree. And I, speaking more to that sort of different ages of movies, I think that one of the things that stuck out to me years ago was just how, well, you know, let, we don't need to get into wire foo and CGI, but I do think that there is a certain element of Usha that the old stuff doesn't capture because of technical limitations. That said, as I get older, I find that I'm I don't really care so much about the special effects and the fight, actual fighting. I like it and whatnot, but I'm much more interested in the stories and the characters. Yeah. In fact, in One Armed Swordsman and especially in Crippled Avengers, I found myself because I was watching on Amazon Prime and Amazon Prime has the great like fast forward ten seconds button. When I could tell that it was going to be an extended fight scene, I found myself kind of fast forwarding through the fight scenes because okay. it's cool. I I like it and stuff, but. I'm a lot more interested in the characters and and the story. And so I feel like now that I'm getting older, I'm a lot more interested in the older stuff because I'm less interested in the the fancy, flashy CGI wire food stuff. And uh, and yeah, so, you know, for people who don't know these movies, they're both Chang Che films. Uh, one was made in 1967. I think The Crippled Avengers was 1978. And The Crippled Avengers is a Venom mob film about a group of heroes who all are you know one is blinded one is deafened one is made into an idiot and another one loses his legs and it's all because the bad guys are this this really interesting villain who was once a hero but he comes home one day and uh, i think what what would the guy the bad guy's name who who harmed his family the tigers of something tigers of something i i don't remember but but they show up and they, they 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 kill his wife and they cut his his son's arms off and this catapults him into this 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 level of villainy that's that's you know almost ridiculous but perfectly within keeping of the genre and and also the movie gets into a lot of interesting stuff you know that has to do with wuxia and um and things that i know that you've talked about a lot before like face i noticed there was a lot of face elements present in crippled avengers and the one-armed swordsman is a movie that's it's based on something that happens in return of condor heroes and they take this one thing and they turn it to its own movie where you have a, a character whose father is killed and he's raised in a sword school and the daughter of the master cuts off his arm and then he is restored to health by a peasant woman who he falls in love with and he eventually comes back to kind of save the day at the school is the you know the very basic plot and and they're both they're both you know interesting in their own ways so so is there anything that you want to add to that that i forgot about or I think that's a pretty good overview of, of the two, yeah. Um, so I guess what we're going to do is we're going to get into thematic topics regarding game design and what we were trying to do with, with, with the game that we made. Uh, but we're going to do it in the context of these movies. And the first topic is going to be maiming and eccentricities because those were big things that we thought really needed to be included. And I think one of the major reasons why was you know, we were taking a lot of inspiration from Gulong, and he's really known for his eccentric characters, but also just as a genre, this is a genre where from a number of different angles, maiming is important. Losing limbs is important, and we wanted that to be part of it. 
So yeah, and the way we designed it, I think is, I mean, I'm pretty happy with how we did it because I think there's probably two main ways that this kind of thing is going to come into a game. One of them is going to be a person who says, you know what, I want to play the one-armed swordsman. And then there's also going to be the the person who becomes the one-armed swordsman yeah. through play. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to um, have... So for the latter, if a character gets involved in a fight, and we made the combat system to be pretty pretty brutal and quick, and we actually have a system for when you reach... Um, when, when you run out of your hit points, so, so to speak, you have a chance to get maimed in a variety of different ways. So that could easily definitely happen. And we wanted to make it so that if that does happen, then you could go through what you basically see in One-Armed Swordsman and the Crippled Avengers, which is people who get crippled or maimed in some way and then overcome that to become powerful martial artists. But on the other hand, we also wanted to allow for people to basically start the game as the One-Armed Swordsman and only have one arm and then not have to deal with all that stuff to be able to role play that one armed swordsman character, as we have both of that in there. Yeah, and the way that's handled is uh, is if you take it a character creation, it, uh, it the the penalty doesn't apply. If you take it, if it if it arises during play, the penalties kick in, but they go away over time. And it, that I did it differently in Ogregate. One of the problems with the way I did it in Ogregate, which isn't necessarily a problem, but for what we were trying to do, it it would have been, is there's a lot of moving parts in order to create the one-armed swordsman. You have to take all the right abilities. It's not immediately obvious. The way that we did it is it just kind of naturally happens over time. And I think that's a, a smoother way to do it. So this, this just feels like a very sleek solution to me. And regarding the eccentricities, which, again, we folded maiming into the eccentricities. And all eccentricities kind of operate on similar principles like this. So that you, you know... You, you, I guess we should say number one. Everybody kind of has to take an eccentricity, right? That's that's part of the uh, that's part of character creation, and so you know, right out of the gate, you're kind of automatically in a Choi Yuen movie the moment the moment things start, which I which I think works pretty nicely. I, I guess yeah, and, and oh, go ahead. And we, I think we 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 did it so that in case anybody listening out there is kind of like, oh man, I have to take one of these eccentricities. We have a pretty big variety, so. Some of them are pretty pretty crazy, and then some of them are less crazy and probably wouldn't have any major effect at all. So there's a, a pretty wide variety to be able to pick from. And then, of course, the eccentricities, um, just like the, the maiming that we talked about, in addition to starting out with something like that, it's possible to game those things over time for a variety of in a variety of ways. And we have minor and major uh, eccentricities as well. Um, that can occur through the course of your advancement in the martial arts. And some of them are, again, minor and will have very little effect. Like, for example, um, your hair color changes or you gain some sort of physical um, like uh, feature that is frightening to, uh, to look at. But some of them are actually mechanical and they, they impose mechanical effects or um, penalties when you're trying to do things. So I think we, we have a great variety in there to cover pretty much the gamut of all the crazy different things you'll see in the Gulong novels and, of course, the movies that were made from them. Now, what did you think when you were watching these movies in terms of the maiming and the eccentricities? Did anything leap out at you while you were viewing it? I know because you were the one that came up with these topics when we were watching it, so I assume something must have kind of struck you about them. Well, it just I, I just kept thinking, like, wow, this is just like in the game that we made, basically. The Of course, one thing that 
immediately jumps out to me because I, I I tend to be too realistic is that some of the things that happened couldn't really happen in real life. <laughs> like, for instance, in the Cripple Avengers, in the opening scene, the kid's arms get cut off, and then he's kind of just laying there, and he's like, my arms are just cut off, but I refuse to, like, yield or yeah. whatever it was. And I'm just thinking in my, in my mind, I'm like, come on, there's no way a kid who just got his arm... But anyway, that doesn't matter. And similarly, but that's and, an know, we have all that's, these... a, that's an interesting topic, though, because I think that is... Number one, that's a stylistic divide in games. Like, how much do you hand wave the details of somebody just having had their arms cut off? And obviously, Cheng Che, you know, you get the sense he's probably doing that to show this is how manly this kid is already at this age. Like, you know, a no, like the mother died right away from, from that kind of a wound. And the kid is just like, you know, you know, I'm I'm still standing. You know, he's not I don't even think he was crying. He, he looked a little sad. Maybe he was just like sweating profusely. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Um, and sometimes sometimes I feel like they hand wave things because there's only an hour and a half and they have to hand wave things. And sometimes they hand wave things because they're trying to convey a concept that you they want you to get. But they don't need to get all precious about the details with it. And in this case, I think it was more about the manliness because, you know, that 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 definitely yeah. is kind of a Chang Che theme is, you know, this character is super manly and, you know, he can he can you know, he can have a million things happen to his body and he won't he won't fall over. Um, yeah, I, I agree. And and, you know, in the game, it's supposed to be a rules light game. So we didn't want to have a million different mechanics to cover everything. And I think especially with the maiming and especially with the maiming, we left a lot of this in the hand of the game master to adjudicate how to overcome that that situation. And I think I think these two movies would be great movies for game masters to reference if that comes up in their game yeah. to kind of get inspiration for how to deal with it. Because in both of them, it, there was a period of time that in which the person who was maimed was a, a useless cripple for all you know intents and purposes. And then through a, whether it was a special technique or a special item, they managed to overcome that and then end up basically even better than they were before. Yeah. We don't go into too much detail about how to do that in the game, but the game master could definitely come up with their own system of how to do that. And One-Armed Swordsman, if I remember correctly, it's actually a matter of months before he's yeah. back and better. And then with Cripple Avengers, it's three years of training before yeah. they're back. Either way, it's so not something that happens overnight, but... Though in Crippled Avengers, in theory, they might have actually been better in a few months, and they just continued that training so they could beat Master Two. But I think that That's the true, yeah. I, I think that the um, uh, the the thing that you just said was resonating with me when I was watching the movie too, because I was thinking that this was a very uh, this was a very good example of how us being light in that situation really helped the game because. If we had a very specific system, it would have almost had to have been either we're going to do it the one-armed swordsman way or we're going to do it the crippled Avengers way. And with the current approach, because it's just contingent on time passing, you can you can you can you can have you can project whatever you want into that explanation for why the bonus goes away. So when the when Master Two's son gets his iron hands, you know, th those those are just the explanation for why he's no longer suffering a penalty essentially but in one-armed swordsman it's because he learned a whole new technique based on a on a manual that emphasizes left-handedness so um yeah exactly and and not to get too derailed but we actually go into this in a, a section of the book that we call genre physics where we're essentially talking about 
kind of like what movie does your game take place in? And I think this is a perfect example of, of that where depending, and this is even with one director, but two different movies. And of yeah. course, different directors will handle it different ways and whatnot. And the, the game master and the, the players getting on the same page about that can allow for just about anything as long as everybody's kind of on the same page about where they're playing. Well, and that was one reason why I thought these were two good movies to pick because it's the same director, but it's over a period of time. And he, he's, he's for a lot of different reasons, but he, he, he makes very different films by this point. And, and also this is kind of this side topic I wanted to ask you about specifically. I ask everybody about this whenever the Venom mob comes up. But how much did you consider Crippled Avengers to be Wuxia? So, yeah, that's an interesting thing because we talked about this. Uh, I think the first time we kind of talked about this was at least a year and a half or maybe even two years ago when we talked about um, The Last Hurrah for Chivalry, I think it was. And I think at that time we, we, had, we kind of weren't on the same page about it. And I feel that my view about it has changed to a large degree over the year. Not a huge amount, but... Basically, if I can close my eyes and imagine a movie being written by Gulong or Jin Yong in novel form, and I can like imagine the scenes playing out in their novels, then I'm gonna view that as being more wuxia. So okay. for for One Arm Swordsman, it's it's obviously it's straight up wuxia. And if the yeah. fact that, as you mentioned, the the premise is essentially lifted from one of the most famous wuxia novels ever, that kind of seals the deal. For Crippled Avengers. Um, I feel like it does lean a lot toward like the kung fu as opposed to wuxia genre, but the setting, the story, the everything is is definitely very heavily wuxia. One thing I noticed between the two, maybe uh, maybe this is um, I didn't take too much time to analyze this, but I felt like there were a lot more extended choreographed fight scenes in Crippled Avengers yeah, as opposed to One Armed Swordsman. And so that's one of the, another factor that I think plays into it because especially with the Gulong stuff, um, Gulong doesn't have these like super long drawn out fight scenes. I think one of the best examples that I can think of um, to contrast is Jin Yong, who's one of the you know of the famous wuxia novelists. There, there's two Jin Yong and Gulong, and there's others of course, but like these are the two that get brought up the most. In one of the translated novels that you can get on Amazon for, from Jin Yong is called Fox Volant in the Snowy Mountain. And I remember there's a scene where like these two masters are like they're in this uh, in this house I forget why but they're fighting each other and I think the fight literally goes for days where they're like you know doing different moves yeah. and like figuring out each other's styles and stuff and in Gulong like that usually doesn't happen in his novels it's usually like they're like kind of face off and then there's like they like bam they fight and one person drops it's not always like that but anyway I think that in the Cripple Avengers it's definitely more that long drawn out fight yeah. thing so there, i feel it's definitely wuxia but the, but with a kung a much more kung fu movie feel there are fights in um in condor heroes that i know go on for like one to two chapters at least like which which is really lo yeah. like if you're if you're if you're conscious of the fact that you're reading a fight scene you're like geez this is a really long fight scene like it's entertaining as hell but it's surprising that that somebody is doing that um yeah i mean also one-Armed Swordsman came out before the Kung Fu craze and the Crippled Avengers came out after the Kung Fu craze, was, you know, and so there was just more of an appetite, I think, for the kind of fight scenes that we saw in Crippled Avengers at that point. 
and and they're also you know they're bringing almost like that peking opera acrobatic style so you know that's sort of the focus of it like you know you could you could sort of sit there forever and there's like there's one scene where they're fighting with these rings and it's not even until the very end it's not even really clear why these are even weapons do you know what i mean because they're just kind of jumping through them and leaping around but you can watch that forever and be entertained so um but which brings us to the next point uh which i'm going to skip number two and go to number three just so that you're following me here um is specialized weapons and techniques to deal with you know overpowered characters or overpowered techniques and abilities in the setting um i think both you 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 would say this in the email and i agree both both of these movies do it in in different ways i think it's probably a much more stripped down bare bones version in one-armed swordsman and in in crippled avengers it's a little bit more complicated but yeah but i'm curious what you observed well we we one of the reasons that this jumped out to me so much is just because we happen to be talking about this a lot over the past couple weeks because um, we were doing some of the, our final revisions for the game. And in one part of the rule book, we talk about this because in the game, we have a whole lot of weapons and abilities, and we know that there are certain combinations that are more powerful than the others. And, you know, clever players are going to be, I mean, when I was doing, um, when we were doing playtesting, I had this where the, the clever players are going to be going through and studying these things and yeah. finding these combos. And then you're, the game master might not necessarily be thinking about it. And then all of a sudden, the player busts out this incredible combination with yeah. huge amounts of damage. And like, oh my goodness. Well, we know that that can happen. And, and, and so when, in talking about how to deal with that, um, it, it relates to these movies because that stuff does happen in the movies. It happens all the time. There's always somebody who figures out some super really powerful martial art and everyone's like, oh no, how do we deal with this? And then the martial arts community or the, the characters in the movie will react to it to try to deal with that. For example, the entire premise of One-Armed Swordsman is that there's two schools that are, or two actually, two school leaders who kind of have this grudge against each other. And one of them has this super powerful golden saber technique. And so the other guy develops this special hook sword that essentially takes advantage of the weakness of that technique and then negates it so they can kill him almost instantly. And so that was, so we kind of talk about that in the rule book in terms of having the setting react to these superpowered or overpowered um, combinations that pop up. And it's, it's interesting too, because I, I think also we, we had slightly different takes on it and the approach that we took allowed both of those takes to kind of be resolved in some way in the setting. Um, the way that I talked about this in Ogre Gate, because I encountered the same thing, and the way I talked about it in Ogre Gate was this, the the evolution of the martial landscape, and I think that's a really, it's it's a crucial concept. We don't use that language in Righteous Blood, but it's still present in the thinking, and it's something that you pointed to when you were talking about all these movies. When when there's a when there's an overpowered threat that emerges, the martial world reacts in an appropriate way, and so I think if you see spikes in power with abilities as is not a problem but as a as a necessary feature of wuxia and kung fu as a genre then you start responding to it organically within the context of the genre itself and so how much you allow for that like so one gm might see a player use an unexpected power combo and be like i need to take care of this soon do you know what I mean? this is this is not the kind of game i want to be running 
Um, as an experiment, when I first ran Ogre Gate, uh, my Bonebreaker campaign, I had a player who was doing that all the time. That was sort of his specialty. And you were, you were in the Bonebreaker. You were in one of the Bonebreaker campaigns. I think you were in the second iteration of it. And what, what, I, what I realized is sometimes when the players have an overpowered technique or ability and they just, like, say, take over a town or something, it's not necessarily a problem. It's, it could become its own adventure and story. And so you have to decide when that happens how far you're willing to allow something like that to go as a GM, how comfortable you are. And then on top of that, you still need to make sure that there are people reacting in the world in a way that's like, hey, there's this guy who goes around and anybody he fights ends up with a broken leg and on the ground and nobody can beat him. Eventually, somebody has to show up and is like, I'm going to beat this guy. And I'm going to, there's got to be the guy in the setting who takes the time to go into the woods and train for three months and figure out a workaround the technique. And that's the evolution that I'm talking about. So that, so that if I like if you, if people want to look at this they can if they go to the Ogre Gate in book they can look up Bonebreaker and see him there and the interesting thing about Bonebreaker is at the time when he came around in my campaign he was overpowered but now he's like you know it's like it's like basketball it's like you know a player from twenty years ago really can't compete against a player from today and so so I don't know that that's kind of how I see it with with the martial world and I I. Yeah, I, I agree about that. I think that the challenge is for the game master to pull that off in the right way. And I think, you know, obviously there's different schools or maybe you could say different points of view about um, the role of the game master and, and all that different stuff. I personally come, I, I, I think of the game master as, you know, like a storyteller. And I, I feel like the game master's main goal should be to make sure that everybody's having fun. And I'm not talking about like cheating or fudging die rolls or anything like that. I'm, I just mean that, you know, I think that having, um, like, let's put it this way. We include two adventures in yeah. the, in the book, but those adventures I, I feel are, are more just like outlines for inspiration as opposed to like having to absolutely stick to every single detail. Yeah. I mean, I think most game masters are are familiar with that if you have any level of experience. And so when this exactly as you mentioned, when when a character has some super some overpowered um, combination that the game master wasn't expecting, I don't I don't think it's a problem either. I think that's cool. I think that the way that the game master handles it should should be fun for the player too. So yeah, yeah. here's an example. Let's say you know you're doing this 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 uh, adventure and then unexpectedly you know the player is like okay i'm going to use the you know super sun powered fist with the you know moon sword and that does 15 points of, of damage or whatever and the game master's like geez that he just killed my villain or something yeah. it it might be tempting for the game master to be like okay uh the next scene you're walking down the street and then all of a sudden someone jumps out with the one of the top 10 weapons and they're also four levels higher yeah, than you yeah it's like obvious that the, the, the GM is just nerfing it. Or similarly, if it's, um, you know, they're they're walking down the street and then they attack somebody and then you're like, oh, this person has a new counter called Counter yeah. of the Sun Moon and it negates his new combo. It's just su super obvious that the Game Master is nerfing it. So I feel like the best thing to do is to let a little time go by and like you mentioned, have somebody go out to do training to develop this new counter and don't just bring the counter on them but, you know, start having rumors going around where the player's like, oh, there's this 
somebody's developing this new counter or or you know they find rumors that somebody's developing like from one arm swordsman yeah. the the clamp sword or something at least to to build up to some to this showdown where you're going to find out are they really that overpowered or not i so i i feel that um the mechanics are important but the way that this the the, the game master develops the story to lead up to that is really important too i think one of the problems that um, some people, I think what some people have a problem with is when it makes it seem like the game master is manipulating the story elements. Yeah. And so I think that that's kind of where we were having some debate is how much of how much of this development is just the game master forcing the players or railroading them down the line, and how much is the world itself reacting to it. Yeah. And I think the the balance between that is what's important. Well, and I think that's because I, I think. And again, it, obviously, this depends on your group because every group is going to have different, different, like levels of they find this fun or that fun, and they're going to have different expectations. For me, the rule of thumb is, if you play the setting, if you play the martial world, sort of just as like logically and reasonably as you can and as fairly, the players should be able to kind of have a sense that by the time, like, if something comes around to them and defeats one of the killer techniques. If their reaction is, oh, that's fair. I mean, that's reasonable. That would probably happen. Or I should have foreseen that. Then I think it's, I think that's a sign that you're doing it the right way. If, if their first reaction to that is, that seems kind of out of nowhere. Then I think that's where we get into what you're talking about, where, where, the GM is is kind of just throwing it in there to throw it in against the player. That it, it's not as much the world reacting, you know, smoothly yeah. to them. And I feel that. Um, experienced game masters are probably not going to have as much difficulty with this. Um, I one thing that's I'm constantly like obsessing about is that I know that there isn't a huge amount to pick from when it comes to wuxia for role playing, and so I'm always I'm always thinking, what if there's um, game masters who are really into wuxia and they pick up our game and but they don't have much experience and how are they going to figure out all these things? My 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 initial suggestion for new game masters is just to spend some time, you know reading forums, watching videos on YouTube. There's a huge amount of content yeah. out there with experienced game masters giving advice about this kind of thing. Um, incidentally, before I forget, I wanted to bring up the Crippled Avengers aspect of the of this as well because One-Armed Swordsman has the sword clamp thing, but Crippled well, Avengers can, does can the Can you explain thing. the sword clamp too? Because the people that might not have seen it, I think they'll find that interesting. Right, so basically, like I said, the, the, the villain develops this special sword clamp to defeat the technique of the good guy's um, teacher. And basically all it does is it it's literally a clamp and when they attack with their sword, it it grabs it so that they can't move that sword. Yeah. Um, I think realistically I wasn't very impressed <laughs> by that, but I can totally see that in but, a, in a Usha novel. But that's like getting at the thing where I was saying it's about conveying the concept. It's like logical, it makes sense. But it's yeah. stagey. It's like very stagey. Right. You have to kind of accept it. Um, it is, yeah. Some suspension of disbelief. But the the point is just they were developed a tool and a technique to specifically counter that one. Uh, they never they they never really describe. They never made it clear whether the golden sword thing. It was a like it was the actual sword itself that was amazing, or it was the technique. But it was regardless. Yeah. He made this special. I think it clamp. was both because the clamp was specifically designed for their sword size and everything. Yeah. And that was one of the yeah. reasons why it didn't work on the one armed swordsman because he had a like a half sword basically. Right. Yeah. I think it was a combination of both. So 
So there was that. Um, and in the in the Cripple Avengers, it was a lot more, I guess you could say, mundane, where you know one of the guys was blind, and so he relied on hearing, and so then they would start banging cymbals or drums to try to confuse him. And yeah. then there was the guy who uh, was um, deaf and dumb, deaf and mute, sorry. I forget what's the correct term to use nowadays. Anyway, the point is he, he couldn't hear or talk but he could only see and so they would like flash bright lights with yeah. mirrors into his eyes and confuse him and so i think that's a an example of a less complicated and but very realistic way to handle somebody that's overpowered and you know obviously every situation is going to be different but let's say you did have a character who was blind but managed to get maybe one of the super powered weapons and then he com combos it with a technique and he's really overpowered. Well, if he's blind, yeah, have the bad guys bring in some drums and start banging them to confuse them. I mean, that's, a, seems kind of like a very simple solution. Yeah, no, I, I, I thought that, uh, that both movies were really good examples of it. Actually, one-armed swordsman is my go-to example of, of the evolution thing, because you have this sword school and then these guys are like, they just come up with this perfect, you know this perfect mirror to the thing to to counter it and and like you said there's so many examples in crippled avengers um and and so yeah i, th I think that you know it's, it's an interesting example of that also this movie is an ex interesting example of just specialized weapons in general we have a lot of specialized weapons in the game because they're always in like gulong stories you know there's always like these it's kind of like the james bond of wuxia in that respect like gadgets play a prominent role and they often have like magical effects but the explanations are very mechanical or ingenious so like the like the box from um uh from hero shed no tears where you're not even 100 percent sure how that thing is working you know it's, it's not totally clear but you know that a person has to be amazing they have to be intelligent and dexterous and all these things in order to control the box yeah, in, in Heroes of No Tears, um, there's this box that is rumored to be one of the most powerful weapons. Um, so that theme of powerful weapons we included in the game. And I think we even included um, a nod to the box in one of our weapons. So in the, yeah. in the book, and I think, I don't remember how much detail the movie goes into, but basically the box supposedly contains a number of different mechanical parts. And then the person who uses the box who is presumably incredibly intelligent and has incredible speed and is incredibly dexterous can use those pieces to make a weapon to counter any other weapon in existence. And supposedly like the way it's described, at least in the book is he would literally, as soon as he opened the box, he'd be like, Broom, and then bam, the weapon would be ready. And, and so, yeah, so that, that, that's a, 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 a thing that I think the, the game master could use as a tool, not the box, but the concept of weapons to counter other things. And whether it's the actual stuff we include in the game or whether it's homebrew stuff that the GM could make, like, for example, the Iron Hands in Crippled Avengers, you know, we don't have an Iron Hands thing, but that's a great way that the, the game master could overcome a character losing a limb or something along those lines and maybe even make them more powerful afterward. And the, and the Iron Hands in this are also kind of an example just of a specialized weapon in general because they shoot the darts out of them. You know, there's all, they, they, they can project their fingertips and like they he kills one of the characters with those fingers at one point. Um, so I thought I thought that that was a really good example of that sort of specialty type device. And again, I think even the hook sword is kind of a specialty type thing too because it's not it's not like a normal hook sword. It's like it's got like a 
it's got it looks like this giant clamp thing like uh, I, I know I used to have a device like this when I was a kid for picking up things from high counters and stuff. It's, you know, it looks like a really fun weapon to use. Um, yeah. But so that, I guess, brings us to the topic of grudges, which uh, which I know you want to talk about here. Now, I think grudges is something that we're going to probably want to discuss over the course of this whole podcast and other movies because it comes up so much and it, it often seems to be handled in somewhat different ways. Uh, but I was curious what you were picking up on in both these movies. I mean, I'm pretty sure I know from Crippled Avengers, but I'm, I'm well, I think with both movies, the plot in general is basically driven by grudge or, or seeking revenge. So obviously in, 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 uh, Crippled Avengers. Well, the thing is that struck me is that there's actually multiple levels of these grudges. So let's yeah. take Crippled Avengers. For example, the opening scene are people coming to settle some kind of grudge or score with the guy who ends up being the villain. And then, so because they cut, cut his kids' arms off, then he gets their kids later and it cripples them. So, so there's all these grudges going on, and then the main characters obviously get maimed, and then they go to chain to settle their score or their grudge with him. And so basically the whole plot of the movie is, is people settling grudges or getting revenge. And then with One-Armed Swordsman, it's a very similar thing. The, it's almost... Uh, the opening scene isn't exactly the same, but it's very similar with guys showing up to settle yeah. the score with the yeah. master. And then th throughout the story, there are many times when this thing happens to this person, and then later they come back to seek revenge. And obviously that's a big thing in wuxia genre in general. Like you mentioned, I'm pretty sure it's going to come up all the time. But we tried to roll that into the game with an actual mechanic. And as I was thinking about this after watching these two movies, I, I realized that the the grudge mechanic in the actual game is very simple and we don't really actually talk about it a huge amount yeah. but it's actually really really big and i think it, i think the game master who picks up that grudge um, mechanic and really emphasizes it is going to have a a much more wuxia feeling campaign than one who you know discards it yeah i think it's also important to go beyond the mechanic because like in in One Armed Swordsman, the villain is so burning for revenge because he was defeated by the leader of the of the Golden Sword School, and and he, and he just becomes this he's this interest he's an interesting villain because he's kind of short and he's got like a really he's, he he looks he resembles Monkey King in a lot of ways because he's got that packet on his back with the with the the spears, but he I don't know he's just like a nasty little man who just wants to get revenge, and I think that. Anytime the players, not anytime, but if the players have a fight with somebody who might not even be that particularly notable at the moment, it's always a good idea to ask, hey, is a grudge going to arise out of this? Um, because that can lead to very interesting places adventure-wise. And it's, and it's kind of, you, you don't want to overdo it. You don't want every maimed henchman to have like a father that comes after the party or something. But if the, if the, party knowingly engages in combat with somebody and and humiliates them or defeats them or something about the combat just seems notable it's definitely worth saying hey maybe this leads somewhere down the line you know maybe maybe this person or a family member of this person you know spends the next two years training and then your job as the gm is to kind of again it depends on the length of your campaign if you're doing a short campaign this would need to be a shorter window but if you're doing a long campaign you know maybe maybe eight adventures or nine adventures go by maybe more before maybe 
two years of playtime go by before this person actually shows up. But if you can prepare that stuff in advance, it's very, it's very useful. So I think going beyond the mechanic, but then also the mechanic we have, I think works very nicely because you get like a bonus when you're, when you're trying to, you know, succeed at one of your grudges. And so I think that it, it's, it's a nice soft way of encouraging it without, without doing it the other way, which would be more like a penalty or something. Do you know what I mean? So. Sure. And I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of um, how to apply it, because I think, you know, everybody knows the whole like get revenge thing, uh, especially I think I think you don't need to be super familiar with Wuxia or Kung Fu movies or Chinese culture in general to know that if someone kills your master, you got to avenge his death. That's an yeah. that's a given. But what I think many people might not necessarily be as familiar with um, unless they've watched a lot of the movies or, or read a lot of the books is that these grudges and, and rivalries and, and the seeking of revenge can come about for more reasons than just killing the master or yeah. killing your family or something. Like, for example, you pointed out in One-Armed Swordsman, the, um, you know, they had a rivalry that they didn't, I, I felt like they didn't go into extreme detail about it. Like, uh, you know, the master had a monologue about how he's had this rivalry with this guy yeah. for a long time. But it never said anything like, you know, oh, I killed his son or I killed his master. So I think these, I think having grudges arise for reasons other than than the, the typical ones would make a lot of sense. And um, there's a big section in the book that talks about face because face is such a big thing in in Chinese culture and especially in Wuxia. I have a couple of videos about this on YouTube for anybody that's interested. But basically, um, acts of humiliation in which you cause somebody to lose face would definitely be a reason for there to be for for a grudge to come about. So whether that's like you mentioned beating, so I, I agree definitely. Like you don't want the random like henchman that you beat to like be. I mean, it needs to be something that will have a dramatic um, effect on the campaign, but it can be very cool. You know, you. If the players are the kind who are pretty arrogant and maybe they beat somebody and they're and they like you know in the middle of the street and kind of trample him and laugh at him or something, and then that guy shows up a few sessions later or you know depending on the campaign year later or whatever that's going to have a pretty big dramatic effect and it's going to be pretty cool for the for the characters I think the player characters. Well, and what I would say to that too is don't invent the grudge whole cloth after the fact. If, if something happens, you need to start planning that grudge right when it happens because the players definitely can tell if if you were real, if like they say they did kill a hench, say, say they killed the one-armed swordsman's father and you decided that the little boy in this case decides to get revenge against the, the, the killers, then you need to, if you're, if you're not planning that from the moment that it happens, the players, I just feel they can kind of sense it if it, if it doesn't feel like there were signs along the way, do you know what I mean? There weren't, you kind of have to make sure that it's, that you're, you're making it clear that this was planned. Um, yeah, I definitely agree about that. And I think, I mean, whether it's, I think that principle applies to game mastering in general a lot because um, not to sidetrack, uh, trust me, I'm going to circle this back around to the main point, but we try to emphasize mystery solving in this game. And whether it's the mystery solving or like you're suggesting having a long-term grudge get set up, the game master needs to make that have dramatic impact. I've I personally have experienced um, a situation where I plan a campaign or something, and I'm like, this is gonna be so cool. I have like this little detail here, and then like then next session in the bar, there's gonna be this this uh, you know if, let's say we're talking Dungeons and Dragons. Next next session in the bar there's going to be a dragon born in the corner with an eye patch and he was the guy that was lurking in the alley in the previous session 
usually the game the players aren't necessarily going to pick up on those details and it's going to get forgotten unless you plan it really well and so i think that um it's it'll take work but if it's well executed by the the gm then it can be really really cool but again like you mentioned it's it's not going to have any dramatic impact at all if three months later you're like and then a man walks out of the shadows and it's the same boy that whose father you killed 10 years ago and then the player's like wait who did we kill 10 years ago well then it's kind of like and it's not even about i mean it can be about dramatic impact but even because like i'm i'm probably less concerned with dramatic impact than you are as a gm but that would still matter to me because what i like to do is number one i like to think of things through the the characters themselves rather than this thing is going to happen in nine months. So what I like to think of is, okay, I have this boy who is the son of the guy they just killed. And now I'm going to try to think what he's doing. And what I find that allows me to do is it allows me to give the players these moments. I kind, I, I think of them as like moments to spot things and avert looming disaster. So like if somebody's planning revenge against the party, if I just suddenly have like the red wedding happen out of the blue it's kind of a cheap shot. Do you know what I mean? But if I have, if I, if I say, okay, now it feels like an appropriate moment. I'm going to let him make a detect roll. Or if he asks this guy about this, maybe he'll learn this detail. There's these, there are moments where they might catch wind of what's coming towards them. And so giving them those moments, even if they ignore them, but later on when they look back, it's like, oh, that's what that happened. You know, I think that's helpful. So I, 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 I think not just drama, which can be definitely matter, because obviously if you're doing that and they don't remember who it is and you're expecting the players to be surprised in a dramatic way, it's going to it's gonna <laughs> fall flat. But also just out of fairness of running the world for the players and not having them feel like... Because one thing that can happen is they can feel like you, the GM, planned this big thing and it was going to happen no matter what they did. And if you give them the... Uh, if, if you're running your grudges through the NPCs, I think there's just less of a chance of it going awry than if you sort of are planning it as um, uh, these these key events that, that have to happen. And if you are doing it as events, at least have have some way of knowing in advance and detecting that those, advan- those events might, might come up so that the players can... It's sort of like... From the GM side, yeah, you want that. You want the red wedding to happen. But from the player side, being able to avoid the red wedding is also important because the red wedding loses its power if it isn't filled with all that regret in the moment that it occurs. Do you know what I mean? Um, which I think is yeah, getting. And oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Just uh, yeah, I totally get what you're saying. I totally agree. I I mean, one of my personal worst um, experiences in a role playing game was where basically what happened was the game master, and he is a friend of mine, so it's I'm not like offended or mad or something about it, but he had this this scene that he wanted to play out. Not the Red Wedding, but it was a very, this was in the midst of Game of Thrones, okay. and we were doing a, a like a Pathfinder fantasy game. So he was tr- really trying to do this like, you know, Game of Thrones feel. And so he had this scene where he wanted my character to experience this horrific like humiliation. And the way that he, he had that happen was that I ran into a big bad guy and the bad guys um, started to chase me. Mm-hmm. Well, I started running through the city streets, and the thing was, I had—I actually kind of knew the rules for chasing in Pathfinder, and he didn't. And I kept rolling well, and I—and then, but then it just so happened that I would turn the corner 
and there would be a bad guy there, which okay. didn't make any sense narratively speaking. And so mechanically, I should have been able to escape. Instead, I suffered this extreme humiliation. I really just was really annoyed at that because it was obviously I was obviously railroaded into that. I didn't want to have my character, you know, stuffed into a barrel and then like the bad guys like piss on him and then throw him in the river. Like I did not want that to happen. He really did. And he made sure it happened even if I didn't want it to happen. And so I think that in rolling that into this whole grudge scenario thing, I think it, it takes some finesse on the part of the the game master to make that, you know, cool um, NPC coming back to seek revenge or enacting some kind of complex plot to trap the characters. It, you got to give the, the players a chance to anticipate it and, and get out of it, even if it's, you know, comes down to detect roles and whatever. But if, if they feel like you said, all of a sudden they're just walking down the street, walking to the tavern, and then all of a sudden the red wedding happened, that's definitely going to piss off the yeah. players and it's not going to be fun. And what's the point of doing it if it's not fun? No, true, true. And so, I mean, we'll, we'll touch on this a lot because this is from, I had a very early GMing experience where this was a Ravenloft game. This was nothing related to Wuxia, but there was some kind of powerful, like high priest evil character that was the big bad and he might have even been a lich i don't remember and in the in the in the huge final showdown he very quickly got defeated because the players used clever tactics and he ended up dying in a humiliating way as he was trying to escape through a window and the players just <laughs> grabbed his legs and fired a bunch of weapons at him and it, it was just it was just a it was not the scene that i planned but i remember one of the players came up to me afterwards and he and he said uh he said that was brilliant. He said that you just let that guy die like that made me know that everything that we did actually was a legitimate win. It wasn't like you were fudging or any of these things. And so I think that what I realized from that was, oh, players, it's like for the GM, it's the worst case scenario when your big bad evil gets destroyed very quickly. But for the players, it's the greatest thing in the world. They just killed a massive bad guy like that. And so as yeah. long as it's not happening every two seconds, it's fine. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Um, and I think the I think in doing like so grudges are such an important part of Wusha that I think that the GM, like I mentioned already, the GM who uses them to drive some of the plot will will really you know benefit from that. But on the other hand, it it's got to be done in a way that's impactful. Like it just makes me think. I ran a Call of Cthulhu. I used the I, I used the D20 edition because my players were familiar with it, and there's an adventure that comes with the book in there, and in the adventure. There's basically like, um, you know, a big bad guy behind the scenes, like yeah. manipulating everything and trying to do accomplish, you know, I forget what it was. It was like bring some God back to life or I forget what it was. And then the scenario ends with a big, you know, dramatic um, fire and there's like a God tentacles and people screaming and all this stuff. And if the players do their investigation roles correctly, they can unlock this mystery and kind of figure out what's happening and try to stop it. Basically, my players didn't do that. <laughs> so then the end scene comes and they literally had no idea what was going on. Okay. They were like, what happened? And then after it was all over, they were like, so what did we just do? Like they didn't, okay. they didn't know. So it, it would be sad for a GM to have, you know, the, the one-armed swordsman as a boy go and train like he has all this complicated things to get revenge on the on the players and then finally years later he enacts this plot to trap them and then they don't know what happened it kind of I, deflates see, the, the balloon you know i i, I, I almost disagree though because i would kind it depends on how it happens but like if there were like a 
Like, let's say uh, this is a slightly different scenario, but let's say you had that scenario where the boy is like, okay, I'm going to get my revenge against the party, right? And he's planning, he's planning, and the players miss all the clues along the way, and then he finally shows up to attack them, and they just mistake it for like a random encounter in the woods or something. <laughs> you know, I'd be okay with that. I would probably tell the party later just because it's so funny. Do you know what I mean? Like, hey, you know, like, like not right away, but like down the road. I mean, but you know that guy that you killed in the woods? He had been planning revenge against you for years. You know, but, uh, I, I would find that amusing. Um, but, but yeah, I, it, dep- it just depends on the scenario and it depends on, you know, the group. And, yeah. but I, I think that th- that example I, I mentioned of the call of Cthulhu thing, I, that, I feel like a lot of that was my inexperience. I could have handled it better and I could have, you know, made sure that it was a funner scene and they knew what was happening. It was just that I wasn't really familiar with how to run that kind of well, scenario. And so I think, I think experienced GMs are going to have a much easier deal. Like for example, with the one arm, if you had the one arm swordsman scenario and he gets revenge on the players, but they don't notice. I mean, there's so many ways that you could handle that. I mean, you know, for example, he could say like, at long last, after 10 years, I will get my revenge. And then it's obvious yeah, or something, yeah. you know, like you can do a lot of ways to, to make yeah. sure that the players have fun and that it's as, as impactful as, as you want it to be. Well, and I should say in the book, we, we, we talk about this a lot. We talk about the difference between like a veteran GM and a beginning GM. And we tried to create some balance because sometimes I am a little oblivious to sometimes the, 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 like the challenges for somebody who's just starting in role-playing games. Cause I just, you know, I, I've been playing for so long and I, um, yeah. and so, so, so you were very good at checking me and be like, you might want to reemphasize this point or that point. And we might want to put some training wheels on this thing. Um, so so hopefully when people look at these adventures and look at the stuff in the book, it's done in a way that's... Um, if you're an experienced GM, you, you get it and you can you can manage it easily. But there's stuff in there that will help guide you if you're, if you're not experienced. Or if you're experienced, but maybe wuxia is not something that you're as familiar with. So, sure. And, and I would suggest yeah. to whether it's a beginner GM or GM, uh, a beginner to wuxia GM, that they, you know, keep it simple and don't try to get too complex. And and one of the great things about um, our uh, about the the system that we created is we based it heavily on books and movies. And we have we have something like fifty recommendations for movies in the book, and then something like twenty or thirty books, both fiction and nonfiction, which makes it really easy to just, you know, pick a movie, watch it, and pick some things that you like, and then yeah. throw them into your adventure or campaign and use those as inspiration. And I think it just makes it so easy for people who even aren't familiar with um, the genre at all to really quickly get some really cool inspiration. No, I, I mean, I would I would definitely want to jump in on that because I think that, uh, I think that's, a, that's 100% right. That what I would recommend for people who are new to the genre is to number one realize that the things that sort of excite me or excite Jeremy about Usha might not be the things that excite you about Usha. So get you know grabbing one of those movies, grabbing maybe a couple of them and watching them, and then finding out what path that sends you down is going to matter a lot. I happen you know like I learned very early on Cheng Che movies really do it for me for some reason. So I I think I started on the One Armed Swordsman and I ended up going down a, a rabbit hole. Where you know I was just watching 
you know, a bunch of Chang Chang films. I also discovered I really liked King Hu. There were certain directors I liked. Um, there were certain types of stories that I liked. And so, you know, it's there's no replacement for watching the movies because you're only going to, if I tell you what Wuxia is about, you're only going to be getting my take on what Wuxia is about. And it's, it's going to be like a checklist that isn't even resonating with you in terms of what that means. So yeah, so I, I definitely, and, I, and as a translator, I'll also have to plug the books as well. Cause you know, it's unfortunate. There's not very many that are translated into English, but there are some, there's some that are longer, some that are shorter and you do get little bits of detail in the novels that you're not going to get in the movies. I mean, just like you would with a science fiction movie or a, or a fantasy movie. And so if a GM has the time to do that, that will, that will help a lot. I, not that it's required, not like we're saying you need to go, you know, read the complete works of Gulong before you run an adventure, but it definitely helps just like it would help if you were going to run a Dungeons and Dragons campaign to go read Lord of the Rings or, you know, um, the Forgotten Realms, or if you're going to run Cthulhu to read some Lovecraft, it's really going to provide some inspiration and, and, you know, one-armed swordsman and the crippled Avengers are perfect for what we're aiming for in the game. Yeah, I would agree. And, and, and a lot of times the movies don't capture as much of what's going on in the books because the books, there's just so many things. And also, there are things that you can't really convey easily in a visual medium that you can only convey with the written word. Um, now, if you're somebody who doesn't, you know, like, like, like he said, there's a lot of fan translations. There's a few official translations. If, if reading those kind of books is not your thing, you might at least consider checking out some of the television series based on those books. That would be another option because the, the series or at least long enough that they can get into the details of the plots. And yeah, I, I definitely agree to that. And to add to what you just said, um, one thing that I've noticed is that there are certain things which are portrayed visually in the, the movies and maybe even the TV shows, but not explained that are explained in, in the written form, Yeah, which means that, I mean, it's the same with everything. So do you have it, a good example of that off your head? I don't want to put pressure um, on um, well, the example that I'm primarily thinking of is like, I think stuff having to do with face is really obvious in the written form. Cause it'll literally say like, it'll talk about losing face, gaining face. And although that concept is present in the movies, it's just plays out as it would play out in a dramatic well, scene. I think, and it's not like, I, I think I can think of a scene in the movie. Cause I was thinking about face when we were watching the crippled Avengers. Okay. And the, uh, what's his name? Keeper Wan, the bodyguard uh, for Master 2, played by, by the fabulous Jimmy, Johnny Wang. Johnny Wang is a, he, he, he plays a lot of roles like this. But he, he wants to go after the blind Avenger. And he brings, he brings, he gets two guys to go with him. But when he gets the first guy, the guy's like, oh, I can handle him all by myself. I don't, we don't need to get anybody new. And instead of saying, no, you're, you know, he's too powerful. He says, no, you're great. You, you could... I totally believe that you can take them on your own, but it's a special occasion, my master's birthday, and I don't want anything to go wrong, and I want this to happen as quickly as possible. So if we bring this other guy in, it'll just, it'll make it easier. And so I, I was wondering as I was watching that if that was something that would have struck you as face-related or not. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, <clears throat> excuse me, I mean, as I've talked about in my videos and, and even in, in when I've been on your podcast in the past, face is just so integral in, in Chinese culture that it plays into everything. And so you're going to see these kind of things 
happen um, all the time. And, and another example from Crippled Avengers is in the scene where the blacksmith is, um, you know, in the restaurant or the inn or whatever they call it, I forget, and he's kind of cursing the, the villain. Well, y- you might wonder, like, well, if he's cursing, why don't they just jump down and, like, kill him or something right then and there? Instead, they, like, wait till later and kind of do it in the background and whatever. Well, I think I think face is the reason because it, they the guy the bad guys well the 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 people who are I mean okay I'm not going to get into whether they're bad or good because although they're ruthless they don't they're not necessarily evil but anyway the villains of the movie they're in that inn with you know three experts and a whole bunch of guys if they jumped down and did something to him there it would be a real loss of face for them because they they shouldn't be openly picking on one guy who who also didn't know martial arts like yeah. he, it's not obvious in that scene but you later realize he he doesn't know any martial arts so that's another situation where because of matters of face they actually didn't do anything when you might have expected them to yeah no okay that's interesting yeah i uh and and again i think that's the kind of thing that you kind of have to pick up watching it in context and stuff you know you know even if you don't really know what face is if you watch enough enough of these movies you you start to it starts to play out in your games so you know, and you can, I think you can understand the concept of it, but you kind of have to see it in action to really bring it to the table in a believable way. So, yeah, you know, like, yeah, sure. like I, I mean, I would, I mean, uh, again, it, you should be able to, to enjoy yourself and play a Wuxia game without having to, you know, be a master of it. But I think what you'll find is if you, if you, if you start running Wuxia games and, wuxia resonates with you you will naturally seek out a lot more wuxia and then you're you're, you're going to notice that your your ability to run a wuxia campaign is just going to naturally advance as as time goes on um, yeah absolutely and i i think that you know everybody has their own target that they're going to aim for in terms of you know whatever accuracy you're aiming for but in the end we're playing games to have fun so if you're able to put together something that works for you and your players and it's not a completely accurate according to Chinese culture who cares as long as you're having fun in the genre that you're trying to have fun in and, uh, and also Google's great Google's great for looking stuff up these days so if people do if you do need yeah, information you know, in the, oh go ahead in the you know we offer like I mentioned a lot of, of suggested resources in terms of, of researching and study well one thing we don't mention in the book is what you just mentioned that you can get a lot of information well, online I'll give a good around. I'll give an example. I'm working on my Lady 87 book and I made a map uh, like a year ago and I completely forgot about the map and now I'm populating the map, which is usually the opposite of how I handle things. But I made it I made an entry called like Taz Sugar Shop and I suddenly had to have all this information on sugar in my in my campaign. And so I uh I I have this book which I think we might even mention in the thing Commerce and Society in Sung China. And it actually goes into a lot of detail on, on you know how sugar was cultivated, how it was used, how it was consumed, um, but it's still only so much information. So I had to go onto Google, and and within moments I was finding all kinds of interesting details about what sugar was used for in Song China. So you know, so that I didn't end up having something stupid like a lollipop or something. You know what I mean? So something that's just <laughs> you know, or if I did have a lollipop and it was it turned out that lollipops were historically appropriate. Right. I, I could point that out. Yeah. You know, I could see, no, no, you, you might think a lollipop's not, you know, but it is. Right. Uh, so, 
And, it, you know, on the other side of the coin, if you're a GM who really wants to try to have it be like really accurate according to Wuxia and, and ancient China and stuff, well, I hate to break it to you, but unless you spend like the next 25 years studying, you're never going to get it perfect. And it's so, you know, do what you can. Like, I, I remember, like, I, I, I felt really dumb, I remember, because I was working with you on the uh, Legends of Ogregate uh, novel, which is the novelization of your game, Wandering Heroes of Ogregate, and I, which is the, the scenes that I were writing were supposed to be analogous to Han Dynasty China, which is pretty long time ago. And I had the characters sitting at tables and chairs. And you were like, well, did you know that they didn't sit at tables and chairs at that point in history in China? And I was like, dang, I didn't even think of that. So um, no matter how much you know about Chinese culture and Wuxia movies, there's definitely going to be things that you don't think of that are inaccurate or incorrect. And so focusing too much on that is going to take the fun out of it, I think. What I would say is do it if you enjoy it. And over time, it'll just kind of naturally improve things. You don't have to fret. But like there was another example of that too, where you 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 were in my Bone Breaker campaign, and there was and you had lived in China for I think like five years at that point. I don't remember how long you had been there, but you had been there you know a while, and none of us had ever been to China, and and I only knew what I knew through books and and movies and things like that. And and the players were at some kind of restaurant or something, and the thing the way that people were drinking you immediately started that you could just tell it was not working for you. And you, and you explained yeah. to everybody, wait, this is how drinking works in China. And, and it was, it was, it was, it was illuminating, but it's an example of something that you kind of have to have direct experience with it to really understand it. Or, or you have to, you have to see it in movies and really get what's going on. Um, yeah, I, I totally remember that. And that's one of, well, you know, in the in Righteous Blood, Ruth of the Blades, we have a whole section on 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 that specifically because it's yeah. kind of an important part of the game. We'll talk about it later, um, but that's another example of the or that is an example of something that you might not notice unless somebody points it out to you. Like yeah. I'm sure ever since then, you watching the movies have probably noticed that the scenes in restaurants and stuff where they're drinking kind of fall in line with what I was saying as opposed to what you would expect from a Western bar or tavern scene, whether it's Dungeons and Dragons or in real life. Um, so having some of those things pointed out and then watching the movies will be very illuminating, I think. No, that's totally true. Every time I watch the movies, I pay attention to the drinking now. And it's like, you notice that stuff. And I was like, damn, it, it's really different. Like it's, uh, and, 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 and by the way, Jeremy is like the person to go to for this because you, you, you seem to have taken an interest in that as well. So like, you, you know, you've, you've explained this to me in, in a great deal of detail, but, uh, um, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to pick a couple of movies that feature that and then do a, do a, do a podcast about that specifically. Cause that's a, that's a subject I could probably write a book on. Well, you know what we should do? We should pick some movies, but I think we should also pick some key scenes too, because I'm thinking there's like the scene in legend of Condor heroes with the, where he has that giant, giant. Oh, yeah. Like, that's one of my thing. favorite yeah. scenes in all. Of the yeah. It, it, the the rest of the series or the rest of the book or whatever you know whether it's the movie the book or or a tv series the rest of it doesn't really focus on that topic as much but but that scene is so you know it, yeah it's pretty iconic i guy when i was in china like i've mentioned this in uh, i just recently did a video recommending some Usha novels and i what i mentioned is that jin yong's novels in china are ubiquitous like everybody uh, knows those novels and the characters and I I've mentioned that particular scene to people in China I think who probably aren't even 
big fans of Wuxia, they all know what I'm talking about almost immediately. So uh, by way of explanation, the scene we're talking about is one of the opening scenes in uh, the Legend of the Condors, Legend of the Condor Heroes book, in which the uh, there's kind of a drinking contest of sorts where they have like what's described as an enormous cauldron, I think it was, full of alcohol, and they're kind of like throwing it back and forth between each other and drinking and stuff. And yeah, that really falls in line with kind of some of the drinking stuff that we put into the game. Um, so yeah, so but we've been going on for over an hour now, so we're probably uh, we're probably hitting the end of this. Is there any any anything that we were supposed to mention that we didn't that you wanted to cover, or we have we talked about? I don't think so. Time? I think we hit the main points. And uh, anybody out there who has listened up to this point and um, maybe hasn't watched One Arm Swordsman or um, Cripple Avengers, definitely put that on your your list to watch. They're both on Amazon Prime, so you can watch them for free if you have Amazon Prime. Yeah, and what I would say too is, you know, we're going to be doing a series of these for the Righteous Blood Ruthless Blades game. We're going to talk about the design of it. We're going to talk about movies and things that interested us and what we like about Wuxia. And we'll talk about topics too. So if, if anybody has any thoughts or questions, certainly feel free to send them to us. We might be able to incorporate them into the podcast. Uh, the easiest way to do that is probably just post the question wherever you see us posting this podcast or follow follow the trail from there you know send a pm to the appropriate facebook account or twitter um and, and we'll we'll be happy to incorporate it so yeah so so we'll be back on and until then we will talk to you later